I could uh, sing that song all day. There is nothing too dirty. I can testify. Well, it is such an honor and a privilege to stand before all of you. I can assure you I do not have any Lucas story, so I apologize ahead of time. Um, <laughs> but I do want to say as, as, I, as I start, um, something we've said in our church, we don't always say it, but I think today is the perfect time to reiterate. The altars are always open. If you find yourself throughout this message where God is tapping you on your shoulder, and saying, you need to get there. I encourage you, it doesn't matter where I am in the message, what I'm doing, get here. Get here. So we have just come off of the last uh, eight weeks of sharing who we are and why we exist. And I want you to say it with me. We exist to live out God's story in our community. In week six, Pastor Andrew shared our value of profound humility. And we say it like this. We choose purpose over preference. In that week, he shared the story. He spoke of a passage that is just absolutely dear. It speaks deep into my heart. He spoke about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And, and whenever I hear it, it, it takes me back uh, because I was her. I was the adulterous woman. I was the promiscuous woman. I was the woman who struggled with addiction. I was her. And Jesus looked at me one day and said, child, I do not condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And I am so thankful to say that 26 years and one month later, I am clean. I am clean because he cleansed me through and through. So after Pastor Andrew mentioned this passage a few weeks ago, I have to tell you, I was, I was drawn to it. And so I went and I read it. I picked it up again and I read it. And I'm telling you, it read a lot different through eyes that had been cleaned. It read different. It intrigued me in a whole new different way. And so I want us to go to John 8. In the Pew Bible, it's going to be page 757. If you have your uh, phones with you, take out your Bible app, open it up. And so as you're getting to it, uh, I just want to real quick, when you open up the Bible, you're going to see one or two things. You'll probably see this passage in italics, or you may see it, uh, you may see a little, a little writing or a heading that says, earliest manuscripts do not have John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, uh, verse 11. And so let me free you of any tension you may have because of that, and I'm sure all of, I'm sure Dr. Mellish is appreciating that. I'm going to mention this. And so this particular passage doesn't show up that we see it until about the 6th century. And so it wasn't there, but it's said to be like oral story. So let me give you an example. Let's just say there is a biography of our dear Pastor Heck. And we read the book, and we all know there's a story missing. 
It's an oral story we've heard, but that particular story you don't want to leave out. And, and if you came to First Church, we would all be able to tell you that story is the ladder story. That, that he had been climbing one ladder only to find out he was on the wrong ladder. We can't leave that out because it gives such a great picture and it stays true to who he was. So this is no different with John 8. It was an oral story that people knew. And they said, this, is, this doesn't change anything about the other gospels. Actually, it speaks to the character of Jesus. We need to put it in. It's a good story. Don't leave it out. So they didn't. Thus, we will read it today. Anybody free attention? Good. All right. John 8, starting with verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, hold that in your memory bank, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has, has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then leave. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. Lord, thank you for your word. May it fall fresh on us and speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, this, this passage read through eyes that have been clean is a whole lot different than what, how I've ever taken the passage before. And so first, we have the woman. The sin of the woman is in your face. You can't miss it. There are no assumptions, no vague innuendos. She was caught red-handed in the middle of the act of adultery. In the eyes of the crowd, she is clearly dirty. Jesus has this woman standing before him. She has no defense for herself. She doesn't speak up for herself. She stands there in front of Jesus in all of her fear and shame. Silent. After her accusers disappear, he asked the question that we love to recount. Who condemns you? Well, sis, neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. This is a life-altering moment because this is a moment where we see transformative grace at its best. He relieves her of her guilt, but then he gives her the option to be different. Not just leave it and be done, but go and leave your life of sin. You can be different than you are now. Now that is good stuff 
we could just stop right there and relish in that for a while. But I want to contend to you that that is not the intriguing part of the story. Next, we have the law, the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees. These guys saw themselves as a moral authority. They were the moral authority of the Jewish people. In their eyes, they were the gatekeepers of the law and the prophecy. They fasted and they prayed and they observed all the feasts and festivals like good, upright Jews. To them, their constant attempt at tricking Jesus was justified because they knew how the Messiah was going to come. They knew. And he did not fit the bill at all. And so if he didn't fit the bill... Well, they needed to figure out how they could make sure that the narrative that they were living with became the narrative of everybody else. We hear a lot about narratives these days, don't we? Well, they wanted to make sure that Jesus, the only narrative that would come out with, about Jesus was that he was a heretic. So their plan was to catch him in probably one or, one or two of these scenarios. One if he absolves her of her guilt, then he's making void the law. On the other side, if he condemns her, then his whole ministry of grace and mercy and forgiveness gets called into question. This was a win-win for the Pharisees because either way, he, he was not going to come out the same. And if they were lucky they could get some kind of accusations that could get them killed. That's the Pharisees. That's, that's who we're dealing with. The adulterous woman was their perfect opportunity. But, but I, I got to go here for just a minute. Pause for a minute. My question has always been, how did they catch her? I mean, she's, a, she's likely a Jewish woman. Okay. The Bible says at dawn, Jesus went to the temple. Y'all, dawn is not 9 a.m. Dawn is about 5 or 6 a.m. So I need to know who been out at 3 or 4 a.m. trying to catch this woman in adultery. Just going to throw that out there. Now, if she is a good, good old Jewish girl, or, well, maybe not so good Jewish girl, she would know that her actions are illegal. And I'm sure sister girl is not doing her business out in the street. So my question is, who happens upon a tryst? Who just happens upon it? Something is extremely fishy about this girl being brought at dawn to be accused by this bunch of men. It's fishy. But let me tell you, if the Pharisees are standing there, they're thinking, you know what? The law is on our side. Because she's just wrong. And Jesus is going to have to give an answer for this. Well, let me just say to you, she may have been dirty, but these cats were clearly unclean. They were unclean. So Jesus, in the face of these individuals who desire to see him dead, and Jesus is very aware of this. Individuals who constantly come up with strategies and plans to thwart what, Je what the Father had sent Jesus to do. Individuals who were willing to break and maim the spirit of the lives of others like the woman caught in adultery. 
country, individuals who are in pursuit of some sort of self-righteous and arrogant attempt at obeying the, lie, obeying the law, these individuals are standing before Jesus. These individuals, corrupt individuals who consider themselves gatekeepers of the law. And in a moment where Jesus can, where he could condemn every one of their actions, he does not. He does not. Jesus kneels on the ground and he starts writing. He doesn't condemn them. Surely they deserved it. They are the Pharisees. We have been raised in Sunday school to dislike the Pharisees. We are justified in our dislike of the Pharisees. And Jesus should, every time we see Jesus tell Pharisees off, we love it. Because they deserve it. They do. But in a moment where Jesus could condemn them, he does not. He writes. And he even takes it a step farther. He gives them a moment to reflect on what they do next. And they all chose to walk away. They chose to walk away. <laughs> he gave them the same option that he gave the woman, just without words. I don't condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Whenever we hear this story, we are drawn to Jesus' encounter with the woman. It's the, it's the part of the story that we love. Some of us identify with her. Some of us have great compassion for her. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more are the words we love to hear from our Savior. The one that seems to be the dirtiest in this story gets the greatest opportunity for hope. And even if we don't have her backdrop, we would rather identify with the woman than with the Pharisees. We look at them with disdain. The Pharisees are the religious people. They're the church people. They should know better. They're the ones who have this precious law giving, given by God, but they're not living it. Jesus was often annoyed with them. Hear these words that he speaks to them in Matthew, verse 23. He says, you Pharisees and teachers are in for trouble. You're nothing but show-offs. You're like tombs that have been whitewashed. On the outside, they are beautiful, but the inside are full of bones and filth. That's what you are like. Outside, you look good, but inside, you are evil and only pretend to be good. Who wants to identify with that? If I was playing Jeopardy, I'll take the adulterous woman for 2,000, Alex. I don't want to be identified with the Pharisees. But let me tell you, as I read this passage through eyes that have been clean, I felt Jesus stoop down and write on the ground of my heart. As a Christian 
who has been given Jesus, the fulfillment of this precious law. I found that I really wasn't identifying with the adulterous woman at all. But I could identify with the Pharisees. And the words that I once heard as an adulteress and an alcoholic, the words that applied to the old me, I needed desperately applied to the new and improved me. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus was revealing to me that my Christian heart had some filth. And it needed to be clean. If you'll allow me to keep it 100 with you, I'm going to share one of the things that, that uh, he was etching on my heart. I, I absolutely do not like grumbling Christians. I do not, I, I, and I mean that in all sincerest. I do not like Christians that grumble. I can to the not with Christians that grumble. I just can't do it. I can't. I think they're divisive. I think they cause dissension. They stir up stuff. They activate gossipers because once you tell somebody something, there's always going to be one who needs to tell that you told it. So then they affect the unity of the body. And with a mission like ours that's so much bigger than us, ain't nobody got time for that. I do not like grumbling Christians. And so... Let, let me tell you, when, when I come across them, I throw shade. Yes, Pastor Sharon throws shade. And if I have any brothers and sisters here that don't know what throwing shade is, let me enlighten you. Merriam-Webster defines shade <laughs> as a subtle sneering expression of contempt for or disgust with someone, sometimes verbal and sometimes not. I, I can throw shade. <laughs> I'll admit it. When I see him coming, walk in the other direction, just so I can avoid him. Ain't nobody got time for that. I, if I pray for him, I pray that God remedy their activity. Don't really pray for their well-being. Pray that God would shut them up. <laughs> That's if I pray for them at all. And, and let me just say, if you are in this room right now and you would say, I am a grumbling Christian, or you wouldn't and you think I'm talking about you anyway, let me say this to you. I am sorry. I'm sorry. I have used the words of Paul to the Philippians to justify my attitude towards you. Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. I have used this passage to justify my attitude towards you. All the while ignoring Jesus' command to me 
in John 13, 34, and 35, where he says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If there is anyone who is more a detriment to a mission like ours, it's possibly me. Because while people may, may want to be turned off by a grumbler, people will definitely stay away when, when they sense that there is an absence of love. I'm guilty. No matter how righteous <laughs> my indignation it becomes unrighteous when I fail to love as Jesus calls me to love. That's something Jesus was writing on the ground of my heart. Let me ask you, what may he be writing on yours? What is he writing on yours? Another part of this story, I told you earlier to hold on to it, that, that fascinates me. It says that after Jesus stooped down the ground and he's writing he says the words, let he who is without sin throw the first stone at her. And he goes back. And it says that they walked away one by one, the older ones first. I have the, um, I have the sweetest opportunity to do life with a young woman named Rachel. Rachel and I um, met seven, eight, nine months ago, I don't know. And uh, when Rachel and I met, Rachel, if you would have asked her, tell me something good about yourself, it would lead her to tears because she couldn't, she couldn't see the good in her. She struggled in her own walk of faith. And uh, it's, it's been about seven, eight months now. Rachel and I meet on Fridays and we go into the Word. And the Rachel that I met those months back is not the Rachel that I know now. Rachel is on fire. God is, and, and it's just looking in the word every time Rachel comes back with this new, like this wide-eyed, she got a new thing, and she is excited. And if, the, if there's something in the word that rubs against who she is, she wants to call it out right away. Whatever God writes on the ground of her heart through his word, she don't want to leave it there. She is as transparent as they come. She is as open as they come. I said to her Friday, I said, you know what? When I see you, I find myself saying, God, I want what she has. I'm the older one. I've been in this thing for 26 years. I've seen God do miraculous, amazing things. Along the way, there's been enough filth to get on my own heart that I've lost that fire. Lost it. I soak up my times with her. And I'm the one that's supposed to have more knowledge. <laughs> and she's the one that's teaching the most. As a matter of fact, I'm standing here preaching today because of a time I was sitting with her. I am convinced that
that the difference between the fire of Rachel and the mere kindling of us older saints is that Rachel has resolved not to ignore what Jesus is writing on the ground of her heart. When he writes it, she says, okay, Lord, I hear you. Clean it. Let me ask you again. What is God writing on the ground of your heart? Some of us who've been doing this for years, 10, 26, 30, 40, 50, we know how to do church. We know how to look the part. We know how to be whitewashed when we come into this building. We know how to do it. My question is, do we want to be clean? Do we want our outside to reflect our inside? What will you do with that? We're going to have a time of prayer. And uh, I know I'm asking a pretty bold thing. Actually, I'm not. I'm no, I'm putting out a pretty bold option. Pretty bold option. If he's writing on your heart, respond. Whether that's at your pew or at this altar, respond. If we are going to even come close to fulfilling the mission of God, there's got to be some cleaning going on. Whatever he's writing, respond. I love the mere fact that the very Pharisees that sought to kill him, the very the teachers of the law, yada, 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 are the same people he died for. He didn't just die for the adulterous woman. He died for the Pharisees too. We ask the question, do you believe that God is saving you even now? Older ones, he wants to save us even now. Maybe you're in here and you're saying, Pastor Sharon, I, I am not a Pharisee, thank goodness. <laughs> but I definitely sure can identify with that adulterous woman. I haven't committed adultery, but you mark, I know I've been living without him. I've been doing my own thing. I've been, my life is a train wreck, and I know it. And, and maybe you're asking the question, will he not condemn me either? Nope. He says to you, I do not condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And here's the thing, the going and the leaving He's not saying, just, just pick, up, pick up yourself by the bootstraps once you get all clean and just, and just walk out and just choose to do right. No, he's saying, go. Put your hand in mine. Go and leave your life of sin. I go with you. I don't leave you to do it on your own. I go with you. Now we're going to let Jesus stoop down again and write on the grounds of our heart. And, and Sam is going to come, and she's just going to sing that chorus. There's nothing too dirty that he can't make worthy. 
I am clean. And if you need to find yourself up here to start the cleaning process, I encourage you to do so. Don't wait. Do it now. Don't wait. Do it now. Don't wait. Do it now. There's nothing too dirty that you can't make worthy. You wash me in mercy. me 